Welcome to Inside Surgery, a podcast from the European Association of Endoscopic Surgeons. We at Olympus are glad to support this EAS initiative. Reach out to us to get more information on our innovative energy and imaging portfolio. Olympus, your preferred partner. Hi, it's Tanner Lamplam, and uh, we've moved on from the Christmas cracker, and I'm delighted to be joined by Hamish McKenzie, who is is going to be actually the host of the the forthcoming series, and we're joined by two uh, very special people who are on my research committee, uh, Barbara Salinger and Suzanne Gisberts. Fantastic, thanks, Tan, and hello, everyone. So, um, Barbara, would you mind just introducing yourself and telling us where you're from and your your, your area of specialism? Mm-hmm. Yeah, hello to everyone. Um, my name is Barbara Seliger. I'm uh, of German origin and currently working in France. So I have an international background, um, both uh, in medical school as well as in training. Um, I do visceral surgery, which covers uh, the abdominal organs and also the digestive tract, including endocrine surgery. And uh, my big interest is uh, minimally invasive surgery. Uh, so I'm currently working at a center renowned for its uh, training capacities. And I, I believe you have 6,000 trainees through a year, is that correct? Yeah, that's uh, people coming to Aircad France in order to learn all the different aspects of minimally invasive surgery for throughout the field. What, what a huge number of surgeons you're impacting. Um, and opposite Barbara, we have Suzanne. Hello, my name is uh, Suzanne Gisbergs. I'm an upper GI surgeon in Amsterdam, in the Amsterdam University Medical Center. And uh, I do mainly uh, malignancy, so uh, esophageal and gastric cancer surgery. And also minimally invasive and uh, robotic. And also my research is, um, has many different focuses actually, but uh, one of the main things is lymph node metastasis in esophageal um, and gastric cancer. And also we try to develop AI models to evaluate the, the extent of lymphadenectomy. Wow. Fantastic. So we're here with Malta Wintermeet uh, at the EAS and we've got some themes which we're going to be talking about over the coming days. The one I think we're going to start by touching on is training and education, which I know is dear to all of your hearts. So um, there seems to be some common themes across Europe that it's, it's a very challenging time for training. The, the industry is rebounding from significant disruption with COVID and some of the challenges that that presented in terms of surgical training. I wonder what your thoughts are on the current state of training. Tan, do you want to start us off with some of your thoughts on the UK sector? Yeah, I, th- I think we've infantilised um, residents. And I think this is what uh, Barbara and, and Suzanne and I were talking about just now. Um, you know, people are not able to make those great decisions. I think, uh, Suzanne, you worked with your mentor. Just tell us, your what, how did he treat you when you were a fellow? Yeah, I was very lucky to have Miguel Cuesta as a, my mentor. I was his fellow for two years. And he really, every time there was a problem with the patient, he would ask me what um, what I would think. So he really treated me as his equal. So he asked me, what do you think about this? And also during operation, in a difficult phase of the operation, before transecting some structure, he would always ask my opinion if that was safe to do. And that, that really... Yeah, is, it gives you a good feeling and, and so he empowered you and yes, it, it yeah. gave you that sense of professional responsibility and professional input even at an early stage of your career exactly and what else also what i really like and what i still do in 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 our group 
is that we go see all the patients uh, together. So we are, take responsibility for each other's patients. And so we, we discuss them uh, every, every day together and, and talk to, to all those patients as well. So if the primary surgeon is uh, having a doubt or um, is not sure about if there should be done a CT scan or a re-intervention or anything like that, then, then you have his colleagues and, and the residents who are doing their rotation with us. They can give their opinion. What do you think? Um, well, I uh, can totally endorse what uh, Tan and uh, Suzanne just said. And from my personal experience going through training, um, it was so complimentary to talk with the different disciplines. So being the nurses, being the anesthesiologists and scrub nurses, uh, having seen these operations for 20 years and given the adequate instruments for each step without even having to be asked for it. So there's lots during training which you can learn from, from other people who are not your dedicated mentor or taking you by the hand. Um, I also think that... The, the aspect of uh, infantilizing um, it is a bad thing to do because it's a waste of resources. In, in no stage of your career, um, you're unable to think. So you can always contribute on the basis of your knowledge. And the more you're involved and engaged, um, the more you can learn and contribute. And tra traditional surgical training was assisting operations. And what I see is that more and more people go into a mentally disconnected, bored state of um, assisting. So they are uh, holding the camera throughout the operation and uh, are frustrated that they didn't do it themselves. Um, but I had to learn like that. Uh, my, my former boss, uh, Martin Waltz, called it stealing with the eyes. So you really have to be there and watch every step and anticipate and engage your brain as if you were doing it yourself. And then you can learn and, and get the practice without using your hands and already familiarize with, with every procedure you're, you're seeing. I think that's so true. Uh, it's decisions are far more important than incisions. And what we, what we fail to do is get the, the, the feeling of a cockpit. So, so when I operate, I, 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 I feel that there's a pilot and a co-pilot, uh, you know, not the, the, the passive assistant. And, and there's something in, in, uh, in the airline industry, I think, they say, the f plane is always safe when the co-pilot is flying it because, of course, you've got the strategic thinking of the pilot and, uh, and then you've got this, this person who's trying to be technically perfect uh, flying the plane. And I think that applies in surgery. Uh, I mean, I think you're, you're so right. It is such a waste of resources. And it erodes and, and the, 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 the corrosion of trust, of um, the ability to learn, really goes down. So in terms of education and training, I think those points that you've made, you've both made, are, are so important. But I think it's also those hierarchies. Where do you get your knowledge from? So you get knowledge from all those people around you. We are beyond the age of the master builder. So we have to work in great collaborative teams. And I think you, you were saying, you know, the nurses will, will give you information. I was lucky enough to work with a really experienced uh, advanced scrub practitioner. And she asked the questions in a really nice way. Um, so she'd say, uh, sh you know, sh should, we, should we go this way uh, rather than I think you should go that way? So one of the challenges is that now with the new uh, techniques that are developing, like the uh, robots, that also the consultants start to learn that first. And 
then the the residents there's the risk that they get sidetracked or that 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 they so that they can't it, do. We're making it worse. It's the elephant in the room, we're, and we're not even talking about it. That the the need to train uh, senior clinicians on in robotics means that we've taken a whole chunk of training away from the juniors. So so and we should keep them involved and and, and for example. Um, uh, let them do uh, the, be the table surgeon, and then also give them uh, one or two access ports so that they can still uh, be participate actively in the operation. And also, I think what is important is to discuss before the operation what you expect of them, so that they get feel a little also responsible. That they have also they are responsible for a specific parts, and they're not just active of uh, passive uh, bystanders. Could I just ask Barbara, as um, someone working in such a high-volume training centre, um, it's, it's really interesting to hear these different themes coming out in terms of methods for training and the importance of team and you know, giving people personal responsibility and, and, and giving them agency. How do you go about that from somebody that trains up to 6,000 surgeons a year? Well, I have to admit that it wasn't me personally <laughs> training those 6,000 surgeons a year. So um, this is something that was built up by an entire team over several decades. And um, then the training center got known um, f for the facilities and the team's training and the experts coming from all over the world. So um, I'm just a, a small wheel in, in that machine. Um, what we see is that the more there is a need um, in the clinical routine with lack of training, uh, the more people are grateful actually being given a chance to uh, have someone dedicated to them for a couple of hours in an afternoon, have an expert on a table of two people um, dedicated to their training and asking them what they what status they have already, what they want to take home from this course, what they want to practice specifically and then they see their evolution and their batteries are recharged for the next clinical routine because they see they have potential um, that can grow within a couple of hours um, and we do the same in, in robotic training so that's not only laparoscopy training but also uh, robotics training so plenty of people are coming uh, who want access to new technologies, who know it from the news, who have seen their seniors practicing on it, but they are asking themselves, when will I ever get the chance um, to, to touch the machine? That They can spend years assisting on, on the table side, but if the primary surgeon is not yet comfortable, still needs to do uh, their volume, then they are just frustrated and, and there's a tendency to leave the profession because you don't see yourself evolving. So I think that's the most important aspect rather than just specializing on knot tying or a specific procedure that we can inspire people that surgical career is actually something worth investing in because it's hard, it's often humiliating. We were talking about this uh, with the responsibilities we have. So uh, this is a, a great way to um, encourage people to see their own evolution and to continue getting better. 
It's really interesting. Do you see a role of um, technology in supporting that training, particularly as we've seen a kind of mega trend move towards robotics um, throughout surgery, um, that actually getting the hands on time on the physical robot can be a real challenge both for seniors and for junior colleagues. Um, do you see the role of technology in supporting that training, it, that you know, there's a pathway from you know, orientation through to the first basic procedures, through to knot time, through to something more complex? Yes, I think it's a um, big aspect to take training out of the OR as far as possible. Um, of course, the resources are not necessarily available, so you won't have a um, multi-million dollar investment standing there just for training. So within a hospital, it can be challenging to free up training time on those devices. Um, but on the other side, it's necessary. Um, so... Ideally, I would like all this training to be included within the surgical career, within the residency and throughout fellowship and um, a company at your workplace. So um, it's a bit of a pity that um, you don't learn everything on the... Uh, uh, in the we have Amsterdam Skills Lab and now there's these new uh, lab abdo trainers and they are really good. They give uh, haptic feedback on the, the amount of pressure you exert on the tissue and on the sutures and so they, they, give, they give you all these values as feedback and now we are organizing um, a competition in the Netherlands so on the surgical days we'll have a first a competition within the eight regions from the eight universities in the Netherlands and then the, the best residents of that region they get to compete in a that's the only way you get yeah that's the only way you get engagement isn't yes. it you, you need a bit of competitive edge you need to understand that the, the domains that you mentioned Barbara of technical skills uh, of of how to use your hands how to use your eyes what interpreting what you see but there's that non-technical as well and then when you deconstruct that then how do you train to do something as complex as a uh, you know gastrectomy esophagectomy you start on this continuum of training so you've got to get the theoretical knowledge you've got to do the box trainer to get your basic skills in laparoscopy up you can i think some simulation is really important simulation for technical stuff but also for that orientation. So when you hit the OR, it's like being in a flight simulator. And yeah, Bonnier will say this, you know, the 787 pilots for KLM do, I can't remember the number of hours, but they do their simulation training and then they're flying 260 patient, uh, uh, patients, <laughs> passengers, passengers in the back of the plane. And, and then you have the, I think the most important thing is the coach, the, the mentor to take you through. Also, we are talking a lot about the technical uh, skills, which is of course very important in in the surgeon. But we were just talking uh, during the breakfast also about uh, the communication skills, and because surgeons they can get a little bit yeah, distant or afraid to talk with the patient or the family if if the complication occurs. Well, that is the moment that that you should talk to your patient and the family. And what did you say we should do? Uh, yeah. Uh, hold their hands yeah. and yeah, touch touch your patient and and say yeah. we're we're doing this together. We'll, we're with you and we'll, we'll help you through this. You know, it's very interesting because within education, um, that, that that role of coaching is, is known very well to be probably the most effective uh, method. It's 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 relatively expensive because it's one to one, but the idea of um, rather than telling, letting people find and, and being with them on that journey so they can improve. But it's quite hard to fund and it can be quite a challenge to, to give people the time back to do it effectively. And I wonder as busy surgeons, how do you find the time to coach? 
Yeah, I think this is mainly done during the morning rounds. So we always do that together. So one person goes to do the sign-in op- operation room and for an ovejectomy, the, the, the time, the, the anesthetist quite, take quite a lot of time. So we have time to do the rounds then. So we go always together, see all the patients and talk to them. And uh, some of the patients, the, the resident takes uh, the lead. And so side conversations, isn't it? But yeah, you've yeah. just said something really important. The resident takes the lead uh, so there's, they're empowered, and then you've got you've got your your safety net behind you, the the the, the why, the wisdom, and the experience. And it is about the communication skills. You know, words are cheap, and we can say lots of stuff, but they mean so much. And when you're a patient sitting in the bed and frightened, the way you communicate to them is so important. You know, one they may have a cancer or some horrible thing that they have to deal with, and then they're having a scary operation. But we, we were to, Suzanne and, and Barbara and I were talking about this comp, the, 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 how do you deal with complications as well, which I think is part and parcel of what we do because we, we're, in, we're in the world of risk. That's, that's the, the environment we inhabit. So, yeah. As you're mentioning uh, complications and, and what we discussed previously is it's a very hard time for everyone involved because you feel responsible. Hadn't I touched the patient, this would have never happened going up to questioning your own existence. Can, can I ask you what the four degrees of interruptive hemorrhage are? Ha, yeah, um, there's, there's been a, a sketch illustrating this and the first one is why did I get involved in this operation? The second, why did I become a surgeon? The third, why did I study to become a doctor? And the fourth, why was I born? <laughs> it's, it's, that, it's that awful. It really is. We're laughing about it now. When you're yeah, in the middle of it, that's also what we need to teach residents and how to deal with that. Because th- you don't learn that anywhere else in medical school. You can only learn that from the people who train you. And it is difficult even for the the people who train to deal with it. So how my, how can you teach this? My best bosses were the people who put my, their arm around me and said, you know, it's not a problem. So it comes down to that fundamental thing of the structures within our hospitals. And, and, you know, in the UK, we've had a real problem. The teams have been completely disrupted and, and we're working in silos. So, you know, your, your idea of going around seeing all the patients is, is exactly where we should be. This is also what helps dealing with complications. So, as Suzanne mentioned, having a team uh, on whose shoulders um, this responsibility is shared and discussing with your colleagues. So it's not to be ashamed of your patient having a complication and the other patients from your colleagues not having anyone, but uh, going through this together. And we also have to illustrate to the patient that we know what to do. This is not a surprise. Every now and then a patient uh, will have a complication. There is morbidity inherent to each procedure and um, patients, when they feel bad after an operation, and that might be a hemihepatectomy, and you just have no force, and then you say to the patient, you know, this is similar to everyone having had this operation for the first couple of days, so you're allowed to feel um, less than perfect. And this is normal, so you have to accompany the patient and this is really where where you can um, use the experience of the whole team uh, to show that you're still mastering situations which are not perfect. It's it's very interesting because this idea of kind of collegiality that um, 
MDTs, multidisciplinary teams, are, are, are kind of the fundamental of surgery. Professionals getting together to discuss a case before you go into that operation. Therefore, as a team, you take a degree of responsibility for that procedure or that outcome. Um, is, is that still the case, or do you think that's potentially getting eroded by some of the challenges you're talking about? No, this uh, multidisciplinary decision-making is key. Um, so for everything in oncological surgery, um, also in endocrine surgery, there's boards and um, you have to be updated on um, the adequate treatments you can offer these patients. And it's become so complex that none of us um, can stand there alone saying, I've got all the knowledge and by hierarchy and by being the prime surgeon uh, with all my force, uh, I can give you the perfect solution. This is not happening anymore. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because what is it about the teams? You know, what makes a Navy SEAL go out to battle with their, their colleagues? You know, why do these people run into the fire? And, and it's, it comes down to a few things. It's respect, it's trust, it's civility and it's humility. So within a team, if you have that, those things uh, across the hierarchy, then you have the perfect potion to start learning. And, and as Suzanne mentioned about um, measuring stuff, and I think the machine-human interface, that the, the era that we're in now, is we can measure everything. And, and I'm sort of uh, north of 50, but the young surgeon who, who are sort of south of 30, they've got grown up with being measured with everything they do. So we have to learn how to give nurturing feedback, not you're too slow doing your right hemicolectomy, uh, what's wrong we have to say okay we've got this data let's go through it what do you think's going on and for them to then bring it out and you can say okay I can help you with ligation of the vessels if that's the bit that you find difficult well I don't know what you guys think yeah yeah I agree yeah yeah so maybe it's a, also the evaluation of your residents we, we should do it maybe differently like and now they have these papers and uh, you give them a score and uh, they fill it in themselves and you just put your autograph but maybe we should do the evaluation differently and spend more time also on that again it could be somewhere where technology can help because we have all of this footage from the uh, the lap stacks and you know there's so much data available to yeah, uh, exactly. trainees yeah. and maybe that's something which could be explored in terms of it is the tick box form the most effective way of giving that feedback or, or certifying it's a perfect segue to to one of the upcoming episodes on technology uh, because uh, I think Joav Mintz is really looking at how we can use this data. Uh, and of course, we have various platforms, CSATs, uh, Incision, um, Touch Surgery. You know, all of these platforms have the ability to, to, to grab uh, data. But again, it's the way you do it uh, and, and how we do it as, as, as the EAS family. Well, it's been really interesting. Thank you for this uh, breakfast conversation to uh, uh, Barbara, Suzanne and Tan and I uh, look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you very Thank much. You. I enjoyed it a lot.